Welcome, everyone, to Citizens of Tech, Episode 2. My name is Eric Zutphen. You can follow me on Twitter, at Zutphen, Z-U-T-F-E-N. You can also read my blog if you care to uh, delve into the depths of, or lack thereof, of my mind at www.zutphen.com, Z-U-T-F-E-N.com. Uh, commentate on technology on the whole, uh, general nerdery. And with me again today, my pal, Ethan Banks. Ethan? <laughs> At EC Banks on Twitter, EthanCBanks.com is my blog. And, uh, and don't let Eric undersell his blog because the blog is the reason I thought, hey, there's a podcast here. So yeah, go ahead and visit his blog when you get a chance. Good stuff. So today we, uh, we're, we're diverging a little bit from standard, you know, computer nerdery. Uh, there, there will be plenty of it, but this is a heavily science based uh, and, and history based uh, episode today. We're going to kick off with the Hubble 25th anniversary. This thing has been around for 25 years now, which seems hard to believe to me. Uh, it, it was supposed to be around a lot longer before it actually came around, though. There's an interesting backstory here, uh, which if you're not familiar with it, it was really interesting to me. I, I sort of always knew that there was, uh, you know, more behind it than, than I knew, but I didn't know the, the depths of my ignorance. Well, okay, so the Hubble Space Telescope, just a, just a level set here. This is the orbiting telescope platform. It's in low Earth orbit. It's got this huge mirror, and it sees way off into the depths of space and effectively time, because the speed of light is, in the context of the universe, very slow. Correct. And so, with this thing, we don't have any atmospheric uh, impact to the view. And so, this this thing, it, it was imagined for a long time, as you were saying, to be to, to to go up into the heavens and and in space view what's going on. And this goes back to 1923, I think. Yeah. I mean, originally that the concept goes back that far. You know, certainly people knew that there was, you know, atmospheric interference. The light was being bent and distorted and, mm -hmm. and so forth. You could only observe at night. Uh, Hubble's, you know, telescope doesn't have that problem. Right, right. Uh, perpetual night. So, yeah, the, the concept goes way back. Uh, funding for it started in 1970. So, you know, th that's 20 years before this thing launched. But, you know, it, it's a long, long period of time that people wanted to do this. And like you said, it goes back way back before the actual funding. Um, they, they funded it in 1970 and expected to launch it in 1983, which didn't exactly go as planned. No, they were, I was reading up on this thing. There were uh, mirror production problems. So the mirror on this thing needed to be ground to extremely precise parameters down to nanometer uh, precision. Um, so a, a huge mirror needing to reflect light into the, the lenses and has to do that at a very specific angle to gather all the light properly. Or you end up with halo effect uh, bleed, just depending on where the errors in the lens might be. They contracted this thing out to grind this mirror it didn't go well. <laughs> no, they ended up with a halo effect and, oh, <laughs> and yeah. bleed. Oh, and yeah, it was not ground to spec uh, correctly. And, you know, the, there were numerous technical issues with this thing. I mean, on, on top of, there, there was the 1986 Challenger disaster mm, grounded which, the program, the entire space program. Right, right. For NASA. Yeah, for a while, there was no way to get the there Hubble into space. nothing, yeah. exactly. And they couldn't just leave, you know, they had already assembled the bulk of the space telescope by 1986. And you can't just leave a 
high precision space telescope in a closet. (laughs) (laughs) This is the government. I mean, you kind of can, but (laughs) (laughs) not okay. Qualify that with not if you actually want to use it later. How's how's that? Fair enough. (laughs) So they were actually spending six million dollars in 1986 dollars a month to keep it ready to launch, powered in a clean room, properly HVAC. Oh, clean room. Sure. Because the very precise mirror and all the precise components, you can't get any dust on it. Right. Yeah. Which, yeah it seems kind of hokey to, you know, retrospectively look back and say, we got to keep this thing perfectly clean so it'll work. And then it didn't end up working properly anyway. But although they fixed it, they did. They did. Yeah. And, and, and we'll get to that in just a minute here. So you know the fallout oh terrible choice of words on the challenger disaster <sighs> i'm sorry people did you say that on purpose no I'm i not. didn't i do this all the time <laughs> terrible evil puns uh okay. yeah so following the, the fallout of the challenger disaster i'm just doubling down now you know space missions resumed uh the shuttle the shuttle program resumed normal operation and they were on track for an April 1990 launch, which actually happened. But one of the interesting things about the the technical challenges was they they were actually doing massive software changes, and they just barely squeaked in on time before the launch. So as they were nearing the deadline, they were frantically trying to come up with you know updated code. I don't honestly know what they were trying to fix, but it I presume had to be pretty important to you know almost delay the launch more you know further Mm. delays um so they finally launched it in april of 1990 the budgeted amount in 1970 was 400 million dollars and again this is 1970 dollars but still there's a slight discrepancy here between the projected cost and the final cost by the time they launched this thing it was 2.5 billion dollars and there were it was a massive political disaster at the time <laughs> well it's it's another classic government boondoggle you know it, it, exactly just inflation it reinforced uh, it was yeah, supposed that. to have launched a lot sooner than it did the costs were massively overrun but but i think when it gets down to it the results what we've actually gotten out of the thing because they did they, this the hubble space telescope was designed to be worked on by astronauts so you could send up a shuttle crew and they were trained to work on this thing and there was all kinds of work that was done number one to correct the mirror problem they had some uh, changes in the uh, lenses and uh, to adjust for the – they were able to measure and define exactly how much error there was in the mirror and then figure out what they could do to tweak that so that they were getting accurate images and fully unblemished images. They, they did that. Right. And so the images that started coming back were, were simply stunning. There had never been anything like it. Yeah. So they – initially they tried to correct the problem with software – and they had some success, but ultimately they yeah. had to essentially build spectacles for the telescope. Yes. Because <laughs> right. the lens was misshapen. And so yep. you use a glass lens to, you know, fix the focal point. And it worked. The The images that it was producing, like you said, had never we had humans had never seen anything like it before. And it's, it's interesting over the years, there have been incremental service uh, missions that have upgraded components of the space telescope and to see the pillars of creation from its initial image 
back in 1994 or whenever. I forget the exact date for when that. Pillars of Creation being a specific astronomical uh, uh, image that you can go look at. Correct. You can go see. Yeah, Yeah, it's a nebula. So the Pillars of Creation is just this magnificent. If you have not seen this picture, definitely, you know, hop online and go to space.org or wherever, you know, picture a day from NASA and, and look at this. Now, recently in the last two years, I think, since the upgrades on this telescope, they took another image of the Pillars of Creation and the difference in image quality and and the detail that you can see is just astonishing. It's mm. fantastic. And you know, there's there's the Butterfly Nebula, there's the Hubble Extreme Deep Field, which basically looks back to as far as light has gone, right? You know, <laughs> yeah. in 13.7 billion years. And it's this tiny little fraction of the sky. I forget the exact measurements, but it's like an inch square held out at arm's length. Mm. And there are just millions and millions of galaxies in the picture. The sad news now is that it is in a slowly decaying orbit. It is. Yeah. And eventually uh, it, it will fall. They will probably assist it with that so that it doesn't crash down. Because if it came straight through the atmosphere, there would be pieces large enough to cause damage. And maybe kill someone. Yeah, well, details. <laughs> they they also, there is a successor coming. Uh, another space right. telescope that is, you know, set to blow the Hubble out of the water, as you would expect from... Much larger mirrors, much bigger, uh, much more light gathering capability. So in theory, it should be able to see even fainter objects and things that are theoretically further away out towards the edge of the universe. Correct. Yeah. And this, I forgot the name of it. James... Uh, no, oh, we didn't write it down. We didn't we write suck. it down. But there's a new one. Dang it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's going to be awesome. Uh, it, it's super exciting to me to see, you know, what technology can contribute to our knowledge of the universe. So happy 25th Hubble Space Telescope. So as we continue in the present section of Citizens of Tech, which if we didn't mention, there's three sections. Present. Past. past and then the future. So we're in the present section now, things that are newsy today. We move on to another news item. Google Fi, Eric, you found this one. Yeah, so this has been sort of all over uh, the internet. If if you you know follow certain sites, for example, Wired has a an article, and we'll post this in the in the show notes, but Google is about to make your wireless carrier a lot less relevant, is the headline. And the interesting thing here is that Google is launching this wireless phone service, Project Fi, on the, the Nexus 6 currently is the platform, the only platform that it, right, it, is, right. it is for right now. But it works off of Wi-Fi, the T-Mobile network, and the Sprint network. True, but but it seamlessly is the whole thing. That's the, that's the big selling point. You don't point, have a right. contract with Sprint. You don't have a contract with T-Mobile. And it works transparently over Wi-Fi. So you've got your calling service and your text services on effectively three different carriers. Just the whole the native internet if you've got the Wi-Fi, and then Sprint or T-Mobile without you knowing the difference. Right, and you never even see the handoff happen. It just happens when the signal with Sprint is better than T-Mobile's, or yeah. you know, better than your Wi-Fi, or or what have you. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That was part of this thing. There's an algorithm in the in this platform that. It detects well who's got who which tower T-Mobile or Sprint's got right. a better signal for me, and it auto hops. You know? And yet the great thing is, you know, 
previously, if you used a, a cell range extender or something like that plugged into your home or office network, when you would leave the office, your signal would drop. It would work coming in one way and not in the other way. But this ostensibly eliminates that. You don't have to worry about your call dropping because you're switching carriers or mm. you're switching from Wi-Fi to a carrier or from a carrier to Wi-Fi. So basically, they're simplifying and reducing the importance of what network you're on. You're, you're going through Google for the service, and then they're handling all the you know, vendor relations, and, essentially. And Google's really – they're doing what Google likes to do. They're leading the way. They're showing you how this could get done because there's no reason this couldn't be done with other carriers. T-Mobile and Sprint happen to be the first two that are tied up in this thing, but this could be done for all carriers. So imagine a future where you've got a phone that is – carrier independent you've just got a phone and you don't know what tower it's on and you don't care what tower who it's cares on. right it's just a service that you pay for and it's kind of like the internet it's uh and the thing is it takes a google to do this because they're not making a lot of money on this thing. no and verizon at least in the united states isn't going to be happy about this because this is going to open up a market for people to use google's service with carriers that you know i I have a T-Mobile phone. Mm -hmm. I use it on Wi-Fi 90% of the time. I have 4G if I go outside my house. I have almost nothing if I'm inside my house. T-Mobile's coverage is not so hot. But Sprint has you know a lacking network compared to Verizon. You put the two together, you've actually got a pretty decent network mm -hmm. to go off of. Okay, so Google Fi. So let's move into gaming. Gaming is one of the things that we've been meaning to talk about on this show. I, now, I got to tell you, uh, Mr. Sutphin, uh gaming for me is mostly a past tense thing, which <laughs> uh, almost. I mean, so so back in the day, I played a lot of Unreal Tournament. I played a lot of uh, first-person shooters right up from Doom right on through to uh, then it was Quake, and then it was Unreal Tournament. Then it was Unreal Tournament 2004. We were making maps here and there, although we just fiddled with that mostly, but we were definitely running our own servers. And by we, I mean me and other guys that uh, wanted to get together and shoot at each other because we couldn't do it at work in person. It turns out that's very much frowned upon <laughs> uh, real-life bullets. So you know, in, in the Unreal Tournament arena – is where it was headshot so ultra kill yeah all of that stuff <laughs> god's like <So> my <laughs> you're bringing back memories uh, so my gaming kind of died somewhere in the 2005 or 6 range and i just kind of moved on to other stuff now consoles got hot again mm. uh, xbox was a big deal uh, and I got an Xbox 360, which I play almost never, but my children do. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've tried to get back into it, but I, I downloaded uh, Steam the other day and played uh, uh, Team Fortress 2. Sure. Which was really hard. <laughs> I didn't do well at all. I'm a first person shooter guy. I got this. I got, I got wiped, man. Old I man just got, reflexes. Oh yeah. <laughs> can't keep up with the 12 year olds. I just can't. So anyway, I, I am a bit out of touch with the gaming stuff, although a lot of the technology is still fascinating to me. But so, I mean, you're, you're the, you're the lead games respondent. Oh, that's heavy duty. So, <laughs> I, I, appreciate gaming from I, more and more an increasing amount uh, an academic level because I just don't have time to sink into it like I used to mm. but you know sort of in the same same boat as you uh, except I, I try to shoehorn it into my life because I still do enjoy it yeah one of the things that's really interesting is how gaming drives technology 
engines, you look at the Unreal 4 engine. Uh, mm-hmm. If you if you guys have not seen what people are doing with the Unreal 4 engine, it's it's approaching photorealism finally. It, 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 it's a 3D engine and a physics engine that you can use as a, a baseline for any sort of a game you want to have on top of it. Correct. Yeah, it's free to use. Oh, that I did not know. If, wow. It, I think if you make a certain amount off your game sales, you, they take a cut. But if you don't make, you know, X amount. It's mm-hmm. it's free for you. There's no software licensing cost to just download it and and start plugging away on it. Mm. Unity is also Unity Five being the other big engine in the in the market is heading that way as well. Mm. If you make under X amount, it doesn't cost you anything. I think it's a hundred thousand. If you don't make a hundred thousand dollars off your your game, you don't have to pay them anything. Mm. It's a really interesting model to get people in the door. But these engines are making things more and more accessible for independent developers. And it's it's a, it's an interesting time to be an independent game developer, which sort of, you know, dovetails with the actual item on our on our list here, which is Project 1999. The actual project uh, that, that spawned Project 1999 is called EQ Emulator, which mm-hmm. I think I've uh, expounded to you that at one point in my life, I was a huge EverQuest nerd. Okay, so EQ Emulator as in EverQuest, the massive online game that people nicknamed EverCrack because they get hooked. Correct. Yeah. And how's, that was, how's your recovery session? That was me. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> when, when that came out, it, it was in beta in 1998. I beta tested EverQuest and I played from launch day uh, on actually on my buddy's account because my PC was a piece of junk and it wouldn't run it. And I didn't have fast Internet and so many reasons. But EverQuest just sort of took Dungeons and Dragons and put it in a 3D world that I could run around with my friends, you know, and and do all this interesting stuff in. Mm hmm. It was at the time, I think it was $9 a month or something like that. And, you know, short, short money for the fun. So fast forward, EverQuest is still running to this day. They just keep pumping out more expansions, but the game has changed dramatically, Mm. largely in response to the success of World of Warcraft and, you know, some other World of Warcraft is still massive millions of subscribers. EverQuest has nowhere near that, but they've, you know, sort of evolved over the years to try to make it more mainstream. Mm -hmm. So EQ Emulator is actually an open source project that sought to emulate the entire back end of EverQuest. So you would use the actual regular front end client from your EverQuest install CDs or download now and connect to an open source back end, which ran MySQL, PHP, and but was it like a blank world or you had to put your own maps and environment into? Or? So the interesting thing is all the all the maps are stored client side and only X, Y, Z and spawn info and all that are handled on the back end. OK, well, quests are as well, which are essentially Perl scripts. So this group of developers distributed the workload of essentially rewriting every quest re you know calculating okay this monster spawns here this Mm -hmm. is how it behaves this is how many hit points it has this is how it attacks and they built from the ground up an emulated world that mirrored very closely it'll never be exact but it's very very close Mm -hmm. to the original world they are up to i think an expansion from 2006 or 2007 now but Basically, all this to set the stage for Project 1999, which sought to take EverQuest back to its roots when it was 
hard and it was a time suck, <laughs> which has this, the nostalgia of, I guess, grinding for, you know, grinding experience for 20 hours to get one level or what, you know, uh, right, right, right. Okay. Because you had to kill so many monsters. Like yes. in, in world of Warcraft, you do quests mm-hmm. to get experience in EverQuest, You kill monsters and the higher level you get, the lower percentage of, you know, quantifiable experience they give. So they, they rewound essentially the database and rebuilt it with none of the modern accoutrements. They went back to, you know, it, it's a week for this dragon to spawn and you need that to complete this quest. And so it sounds like the whole point of this thing is for the hardcore people that remember whatever quest was like back in the day, they can use Project 1999, which is based on EQ Emulator, and get that experience. Correct. So it's almost like... It's almost like for EverQuest snobs. It, it kind of is. <laughs> um, and the interesting thing about it is you, you have to use uh, a certain client because there have been dozens of versions of EverQuest released. You have to use a certain version of the EverQuest client called Titanium to access this. One of the problems with that is there is largely no legal way to acquire EverQuest Titanium anymore. You may be able to find it on eBay. Maybe. You may be able to find it on every torrent site in the world. Oh, you definitely can. (laughs) You definitely can. (laughs) And the really interesting thing here is there have been uh, EverQuest emulated servers that have been served cease and desist notices by Sony, the original publisher of the game. Party poopers. Right. Because they're not making money off subscriptions or what have you. So uh, this comes around here with Project 1999. It was actually, I think, two weeks ago now, endorsed by the company that was Sony Online Entertainment, is now called Daybreak Games. They actually said to the main developers, we don't mind you doing this. We're not going to seek legal action because you're providing a service that we cannot provide. Mm -hmm. You're providing this world that we can't rebuild and you've already rebuilt on your own. Mm-hmm. So they've they've gone as far as saying, look, we don't care how people get a hold of EverQuest Titanium anymore. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter. No right. one's going to get sued. No one's going to get copyright infringement notices or what have you. Uh, because there's been a lot of concern. This has been running, I think Project 1999 has been running for six years now. Yeah. Uh, in some capacity from development to, to production. And there's always been people that have said, oh, I, I'm not going to invest the time because what if Sony sues and they have to shut them down? So this is a huge deal for the, you know, in the open source project, the the independent gaming community to have the parent company that produced the IP, the intellectual property, mm-hmm. say, go ahead and do it. Mm. And no one really saw it coming. So it's been an interesting development. That's pretty cool. Um, be- for exactly the reasons you say, as long as there's more money to be made out of something in some way or another, that y- you can pretty much count on the the big corporations that that's the side they're going to fall on, right? Protecting their revenue streams and whatever it is. So if there's if there's been some avenue to open things up here a little bit, and you you got to admit this can't be a huge revenue loss for them in any way, because I mean, face it, how many people does this particular project appeal to? Right. They're- on the other hand, there's a precedent being set here that other this kind of opens the the door for other sorts of projects like it, this to have some success. Exactly. Yeah. There's at any given time around a thousand people playing on the server, hmm. and it's not really a revenue loss for Sony or Daybreak Games now because these people want to play this version of the game that. 
they can't provide anymore. So they're already not going to get subscriptions from right. them. So right. I think that factors in largely. Yeah. Okay. Well, all right, let's move the storylines of the present on to another storyline here. We've got uh, Microsoft with a universal Bluetooth folding keyboard. So we had to get in at least one gadget today, right? Yeah, I always got to have a gadget. So, yeah, you, you found this thing. Okay, so I, I looked at this thing and I said – Folding Bluetooth keyboard, and my brain immediately said no. So I yeah. like keyboards. I'm picky and I'm fussy about keyboards. And you have a mental image of this is going to be junk. And I had the mental image of this is not just junk, but just junk. And I'm probably going to take and throw it against the wall at some point <laughs> and see if it's not only foldable, but breakable. <laughs> but but he, here's the deal. Um, for me, I've had some of these Bluetooth keyboards that work with uh, an iPad. Mm-hmm. No, I have an iPad mini. It's uh, It's small. Of course, and so with a keyboard designed for the iPad Mini, it's kind of you know not that wide, and it's a little tough to type on. So I've had that experience with those sorts of Bluetooth keyboards. They're okay. There's a little bit of lag sometimes. Sometimes there's problems with getting it to join, and my my whole thing is just kind of like ah, I don't know. On the other hand, I have a wireless Bluetooth keyboard. Uh, it's not Bluetooth. It's from Logitech. Uh, it's not Bluetooth. It's their own magical thing. RF. Yeah. Yeah. And it works solidly. It's solar powered. And I like it. It's got nice feel to it. Um. But again, foldable and Bluetooth, and I'm thinking the form factor is going to be weird and all of that. Okay, so now i got one more comment to make. It's a Microsoft piece of hardware. I have had really good luck with Microsoft hardware in the past. As have I. Uh, Microsoft mice. I've had several Microsoft mouses. Mises. 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 (laughs) Over time. Wireless ones, and they're form-fitting, and they're ergonomic, and they last a long time. And and so, you know, my mind's kind of opening up, like, maybe this would be okay. Sure. So what are your thoughts on this thing? You found the article. Yeah, I I actually saw saw this on someone's blog, and the thing that sold me was there was an animated GIF. Yes, I said GIF. I don't care if the inventor of the GIF says it's GIF. You're wrong. It's GIF. It's GIF. Just so you know. (laughs) (laughs) We found something we disagree on. We have to end the show. No. <laughs> so there was an animated GIF or video of this GIF. product being used, and it showed there are hotkeys on this thing. First of all, it, it the form factor reminds me of the Microsoft ergonomic keyboard because it is split down the middle, which I've used a Microsoft ergonomic keyboard, and it's comfortable. I did for years. But I do just... not type as quickly on it. So the ergonomic keyboard that we're talking about is this thing that's kind of it's it's not a flat keyboard. It's, it's a it's, wave. Yeah, it's got a big mound in the middle, and then it's split uh, in the middle, and then the keys are at an angle. Yep. And the whole intent of it was that you could hold your arms and your hands more naturally, and it would be help you with carpal tunnel syndrome. And in theory, it was more efficient, and you know that kind of thing. Not more efficient like a Vorjak t- keyboard, which is really efficient. Right. But, right. Except that you have to retrain your entire brain how to type. And that's a problem. That, yeah, that's, that's not going to cause considerable slowdown for me but, personally. But the ergonomic keyboard from Microsoft was was all of those things. So it is split down the middle like that, but, but it's, it's still a flat keyboard. Right, it's flat. It's not curved. It's not, you know, you don't ha- hold your hands at an angle or what have you. But this is where it folds. So looking at it initially, I said, well, that's kind of interesting looking. And it shows this woman working on an iPad. I think it was some sort of tablet. And then her phone is sitting next to the tablet. And you see, you know, a a message come in through iMessage. And she hits a hot button on the keyboard and starts typing and hits enter. And she responds to the text message on the phone and then just hits the 
the other hotkey and goes back to working on the tablet. Oh, right, right, right. This thing can swap between multiple devices. It hot swaps. So it's it's Bluetooth for whatever device you're on right. with the hotkey embedded. So you just change the devices that it's uh, uh, sending input to. Which is brilliant. Yeah. And I'm not sure why it took until 2015 for someone to think of this. <laughs> it It seems like a no-brainer because how many times, you know, you're working on your laptop – typing, whatever, browsing the internet, and a text message comes in on your phone or mm-hmm, iMessage or what mm-hmm. have you. And it would be so quick to just use that same keyboard and not have to even, you know, necessarily pick up the phone. And I use SwiftKey on my on my phone, which speeds up my typing. But it's still, you're, you're physically reaching, grabbing the other device and having to swipe away at it or tap away at keys. Having a dedicated keyboard that'll work with whatever device, Bluetooth-enabled device you have, just mm-hmm. it's... It's really sharp. Hmm. Well, you find another article here. The uh, U.S. Defense Secretary says that Snowden has caused tensions with techies. The whole idea of the tension between the government and all of the things that Edward Snowden revealed that the government is doing, like getting deep inside the Facebook network and you know, and so on, doing a lot of deep data mining in places that, in theory, you had some privacy. Um, he uh, – the the U.S. Defense Secretary has claimed that there's tension now between government and techies because the, the techies don't really trust what the government is doing. We can't take you guys at face value. Plus, they operate differently. The mm. government is very slow. Techies tend to work very fast, you know, startups, rapid development, that kind of thing. Uh, but in, in fact, you disagree with the statement that it's Snowden that caused this tension. Well, yeah, because I'll, I'll say this. Snowden was the precipitate that caused the tension. But – the first, you know, little snowball that rolls down the hill <laughs> that yeah. starts the avalanche. You you can't pin the avalanche on that snowball alone because it's a tipping point. You know, the the defense got, secretary got avalanche uh, avalanches pinning and tipping point metaphors <laughs> in play now. Just so everyone's keeping track. Sweet mercy, what am I doing? So the interesting thing here is that the defense secretary is trying to pin all of this and basically saying, "You guys don't trust us." And it's Snowden's fault. Uh, it's, I guess, technically kind of true, but Snowden isn't why they don't trust you. It's the fact that he had something to report that was many things <laughs> to report <laughs> yeah. and continues to report. Um, so it's it just strike it struck me as blame shifting essentially. Yeah, it's not our fault you don't trust us. It's the Snowden guy. But Eric, there's terrorists, so mm. it's okay. Mm. Save the world. <laughs> Tap all the routers. Oh, oh, gosh. <laughs> uh. So we, we, we started Death Watch last week with uh, with title. We put uh, the title music services on is on our Death Watch list. Um, not much has changed with title is uh, this week they announced. And in fact, maybe kind of against our prediction of death, they announced 770,000 subscribers I found. So if you do that math, 777 subscribers, let's assume that's true. Sure. Times their $20 a month sub- subscription rate comes out to like 14 mil plus in revenue every month. Which sounds that seems like a plausible business model. I don't know. <laughs> it, it sound that sounds like a reasonable amount. The interesting thing will be the fall off rate. I think. Yeah, and what's the retention rate going to be over time? Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, I'm not, I'm not taking them off Death Watch well, for the, sure. No, definitely not. The other, the other thing, you know, they they tout their 320 kilobit audio streams mm-hmm. for audio files, but no audio file, no true audio file is even going to use a streaming service. 
No, at 320K, you're still getting about a, it's like three or four to one compression ratio from a truly uncompressed stream. I mean, there's a nominal amount of uh, compression you can get and your reduction in size from some lossless codecs right. like FLAC yeah. and there's some other ones out there. But, um, you know, if you're going down to 320K, it's it's, it's four to one. It's very listenable and you've got to pay attention. But if you're an audio file and again, you have that's a $10,000 audio system, you can tell the difference between 320K and an uncompressed, you know, a, a original recording uh, sound stream. Those are different things. So basically, I guess what I'm pointing out here is that they say they're for audiophiles, but they're for they're really for people that want to pretend that they're audiophiles. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, they're still definitely on my death watch list here because I I don't know how they can sustain the model. And and the other the other thing that factors in here is Apple is relaunching their Beats service. Yep. And they've been putting pressure on the recording labels to pull their content from the free services, Pandora and Spotify, obviously the two big ones. Mm -hmm. So Apple is pushing the labels to say. No, you should you should basically only have your stuff on Beats Audio and pull from the free streaming services. No idea what kind of traction they've gotten so far, but that's a tidbit that I found this morning. Uh, so the the future doesn't look terribly bright. Maybe they'll you know exist for a while, but I don't think they're going to thrive like they were hoping for. Well, they might have to have a market for unique content, but at twenty bucks a month. That's got to be a lot of unique content for yeah. title to to continue on in my mind. And I think if they so. if they had six or seven or eight dollars a month, they'd probably have a much higher adoption rate. I am nominating something else for Death Watch, however, and I have my hand raised in the air victoriously, which none of you can see. <laughs> I really do, though. It's kind of sad. Um, I am nominating FM radio for Death Watch, and uh. that comes from a particular article here in Norway. They have said that they're going to kill FM radio. They're replacing it with DAB, digital audio broadcasts, sure. and the DAB plus format. So like you can get uh, digital audio streaming across the internet, it's going to be digital digital audio broadcasting uh, over the air. And you can have, just like you have HDTV now mm. over the air. Same kind of thing, only in the radio format. Um, the article mentioned that 55% of Norwegian homes already can receive DAB signal. And uh, FM, traditional analog radio frequency modulation, is going to go away over the next couple of years, I believe. This is 2015, so I think it was like 2017 was all supposed to be faded out. And the rest of the world is watching this. Now, to me, this makes sense. Um, Definitely. But but there's a couple of reasons it makes sense to me beyond just you know the DAB technology. Um, it's also that <laughs> I think FM has become a wasteland to, to listen to, you know, if you have a national service like the BBC sure. in uh, in the UK that is less supported, if support, I don't think it's supported at all by commercials, right? No, not at all. Not, right. It's, it's all government uh, supported. That seems to have a way forward. But I think so many, so much of the rest of the world has been listening to streaming audio, hates commercials. I used to, once upon a time, I paid $10 a month to Spotify just to have commercial free, interruption free music. Me too. Uh, why... Would I want any sort of broadcast at all? And certainly not FM. Now, just for fun, I listened to some FM radio the other day. If you listen to, in America, National Public Radio, that is uh, government-sponsored and also donation-sponsored. Uh, that's how they pay their bills. So you don't – you get occasional brief messages, but nothing that's really – you know, a, a, Not a full-out 
advertisement. But if you listen to a traditional, like a rock station, you know, just or a pop station, top 40, something like that, it has got to be, I'm, I didn't time it. It's felt like 15 or 20 minutes worth of commercials per hour of actual music content. Wow. Just brutal. Just brutal. Who wants to listen to that in this day of streaming? It's it's so. I mean, FM radio on on the on the death watch list. I don't know about AM radio. What do you think about AM radio? AM's a different animal. Yeah. Uh, not that I ever listened to it, but it's different content. It's like sports it's broadcasting and it's talk, talk radio, radio, right? And that's uh, you know maybe maybe podcasts replace much of that. It can't replace live sporting events, which does occupy a good bit of the AM spectrum. But. Right. Yeah. If you want to listen to the, the baseball game or the football game, what have you, you're going to be listening to chances are AM mm. radio or, you know, maybe an FM station that that carries that mm. as well. You know, a talk station. So I think I think the death of FM is going to take a long time. It'll be a few years at but least. At least. So, I mean, it might be it might be on the death watch list as, as long, long as we're running time. citizens of tech. But <laughs> but I'm, I'm putting it on there and good on you, Norway. We'll be watching to see how things are going speaking of streaming media and uh and keeping track of it i don't know how many of you use amazon prime for streaming that's what i use i I was already an amazon prime customer i i'm a cord cutter i don't have dish network or a cable provider or anything like that i just do streaming for my video entertainment and uh amazon prime is the only service i subscribe to not netflix and not hulu plus well, what's on prime now.blogspot.com. He just posts blog articles that tell you what new movies are coming up, what old movies are leaving the catalog. And so if there's things that are important to you uh, to keep track of in the Amazon Prime library that you can watch for free, that's that's the place to go. It's uh, it's good stuff. Because if you're not aware, if you're not a cord cutter, you may or may not be aware that uh, any of these libraries that you subscribe to. Amazon Prime, Netflix, etc. The content doesn't live forever. Um, the content that's available today may change next week. Oh, I'm watching, you know, season three of, you know, some uh, sci-fi show. Okay, cool. Um, and then the next month you go, I'm going to finish off season three. Crap, it's gone. Or, yep. it's, or it's pay only. Right. Kind of thing. So what's on Prime now keeps you in loop on all that stuff for the Amazon Prime library. So that you make sure you don't miss something that's important to you. Because if you're a cheapskate like me, you don't want to pay for anything if you're already paying for the Amazon Prime service in general. Who wants to pay extra to watch season three of something obscure? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And since since you pointed this out to me, I've I've been keeping tabs on it as well because Prime is our entertainment source as well. Mm-hmm. We historically have had a Netflix account, but we haven't used it in over a year now. And we find almost everything we need can be found either on YouTube or Amazon Prime Mm. or directly on whatever show's website. Well, why don't we move from the present to the past? In the past, we thought about a lot of things. And there's there's so many interesting things that that, that go into the past. We did the Commodore 64 last week, so we kind of stayed digital. Well, we're going to go way past now, and we're going to talk about trains. Now, Eric, you did the homework on this one. Uh, and, and I'll tell you, as I was reading through the stuff that you found, I mean, we can kind of break it up into two sections. One that I never would have thought of, which is the tracks, actually how a train, uh, what a train has to ride on to get from point A to point B. There was so much technology and development that were tied into the tracks. And then there were the engines uh, themselves. So we're going to do a kind of a brief look back at, uh, at trains. Eric, you want to take us in? Sure. So. The earliest traces of a train-like system go back way, way back. 600 B.C. 600 B.C. in ancient Greece. Uh, I'm going to slaughter the pronunciation, but it's something like uh, 
Peloponnese Peninsula. That's close enough. Yeah, you know. We'll give you that. Yeah, uh, Greek to me. Oh, uh, you went there oh, again. I again did. With the nerd puns. So basically this uh, Dialkos, or however it's pronounced, it'll be in the show notes, was a land bridge. It was the shortest distance uh, from one body of water to the other at this peninsula. It, mm-hmm. it enabled you to transport goods traditionally to the other side it was a, approximately six kilometers there's variations of calculations it may have been eight kilometers what have you but 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 you didn't have to sail you didn't have to sail and, the, which would have been the other way to get from between those two points. right it was over 700 kilometers you around had to go all the way around the peninsula right which you know dangerous sailing you know of uh, looking at the stats here, 700 kilometers as opposed to a land bridge of just a few kilometers. Right. So this this was a train. I mean, this wasn't a train like we think of, like, you know, steam powered with cool wheels. Right. And- no, this was probably human powered. Right. And it, it wasn't what we think of as a rail system, but it did use a track system. And it, the tracks were carved into limestone. Aha. So basically, so I'm imagining kind of like a like a like parallel depressions in the limestone kind of thing. Yeah, I think they were they were about six feet apart mm-hmm. and, it, you know, ran parallel for this cart system. So you got a chain of carts uh, riding this parallel track cut into the limestone and then people were moving this thing. Yeah, there has been speculation that it may have been oxen, but the oxen probably wouldn't have had good traction. So they. They think people probably did this. Hmm. Now, the the really interesting thing was usually this was used for goods and it would, you know, one ship would dock on one side. They would take all offload all the, the goods, pull them across and then reload another ship to continue the journey. Mm-hmm. But during times of war, they would actually move the entire ship across this. Okay. Now, these are hundred plus foot long wooden ships. Yeah. So there were elaborate support systems needed in between, uh, you know, carts to support the the bow and the stern and and all this, so that it wouldn't just you know crack because of the the weight of this. We're talking thirty six tons of ship. Kind of like that Pirates of the Caribbean scene. Was that, <laughs> yeah. was that at World's End where you get those crabs made of stone that are moving the ship across land? It's pretty sweet. Yeah. So they they figured that. Uh, it would take about 180 men to get the cart system moving. Mm-hmm. Once the cart system was moving, here's where rail gets interesting. Because of the low rolling resistance mm. of the hard uh, surface so and going, the hard yep, wheel, yep. maintaining that motion is incredibly efficient. And so they would start off with somewhere between 150, 180 men. And then once they got it going up to the raucous speed of two kilometers an hour, <laughs> It would take about three hours to move a ship across, but they would go down to around 100 men. Because that's all it took to keep it going. To maintain yeah, Overcoming that. inertia was hard, but then once you've done that and you've got momentum, it takes fewer people to keep the thing rolling. Exactly. And that yeah. really is the key of rail transportation. And that's why these wagonways, it's, this is considered a wagonway, uh, they could move 36 tons of ship in three hours from one essentially ocean to another drop it in at the other side and continue to sail. And again, save all that time, distance, hmm. get the Navy on its way. So moving up to slightly more modern times, we're getting into, what, I think, the 1700s here, into the early 1800s. Um, 
you you can demonstrate this efficiency using uh, iron plates uh, covering a wooden tramway. We're talking 1805 at Croydon, England. This was demonstrated. So let me read a quote here. A good horse on an ordinary turnpike road can draw 2,000 pounds. This, this was someone who was talking about this at the time. A good horse, an ordinary turnpike can draw 2,000 pounds for, for or one ton. So a party of gentlemen were invited to look upon this experiment that the superiority of this new road – might be established uh, by demonstration. Twelve wagons were loaded with stones till each wagon weighed three tons and the wagons were fastened together. So basically a train in the form of wagons. The wagons were fastened together. A horse was then attached, which drew the wagons with ease six miles in two hours, having stopped four times in order to show that he had the power of starting, in other words, overcoming that inertia, as well as drawing his great load. So just by going from a, a wagon on a regular road to 12 wagons filled three times as much uh, each, you know, so you got a one horse on a uh, iron covered wooden tramway able to draw 36 tons of goods versus one ton on a regular road. So, so the whole efficiency thing is uh, is is huge here. And this really that uh, proof of concept, if you will, sure, really started to drive rail uh, and rail transport ahead. Yeah, oftentimes initially it was it was used to transport coal and and other ores and was point to point between facilities. So they started with wood rail, which was, you know, obviously easy to manufacture, but it wasn't durable and it had relatively high friction. So it wasn't as efficient as what would come next, which Re- would be relatively better, but not not what comes later. Right. Significantly better than just driving on a dirt road with your wagon or what have you. But next came cast iron plates over the wood rails, which you alluded to earlier. Uh, that sounds brittle, though. It, it is. That that was the big issue. It's, uh, you know, much more durable than just wood, much lower friction, but it would crack and, mm. you know, flake and wouldn't last a long time. So they moved from that over to wrought iron, which was more pliable. It allowed the metal to flex and give based on the weight. The interesting thing is this is a time where they were experimenting with lots of different technologies. And, and we look back and think yeah, that, that, that's technology. Yeah, yeah. Well, metallurgy was advancing a lot there. <laughs> we're talking about the getting into the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. Absolutely. And, yeah. And, and rail is what ended up driving. Oh, nerd. The industrial revolution. No, I didn't. You saw my face. I did. (laughs) (laughs) Rail drove the industrial revolution. So there were flanged wheels with unflanged rails, and there were unflanged wheels with flanged rails. The flange being that little L shape, either on a you know what we think of as a modern train wheel Mm -hmm. that holds the train on the track as it goes around corners, and the flanged track was attempted to see, you know, how does this work? And Mm -hmm. they were just throwing stuff against the wall, sort of, I guess, against the ground. And they found that the flanged rail worked well, except when it came to going around turns, Mm -hmm. especially with load, the wheel having the flange, because the weight was pushing down on the wheel, actually kept the trains from derailing as often. It was settled upon that it would be a flanged wheel Mm -hmm. in an unflanged track. Now, like we said, they started moving to raw iron rail, but raw iron was very expensive and slow to produce until a guy named Henry Court came along and patented the puddling process, which is a certain method of obtaining iron, melted, you know, condensed down iron. 
to be extruded, hammered, what have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was in 1784. Okay, so now we've improved the the, the metal, uh, and now we've improved the process to make the metal, which makes now we, so now we're moving towards mass production of rails and wheels. Yeah, and really the the only two things remaining are speed of production, which was solved by the rolling process. Uh, okay, so now we're better than rather than hammering rails out, we are using a rolling process, which according to the stats here, fifteen times faster than hammering them out. Now we can crank out rails. Yeah. Now that we can crank out rails, we can connect places together more quickly. You've got it. And then the other missing piece, uh, James Beaumont Nielsen came along and patented the blast furnace in eighteen twenty four. So this is a significant gap. This is forty years from. The, the puddling process to the blast furnace, mm. the blast furnace being significant because you could heat the iron much more quickly with much less fuel. So it drove the cost of iron production down got it, got it, got it. and yep. made it you know reasonable to lay out miles and miles and miles of track. So iron, you know, even though we're, we're good at making it now, we can lay miles of track. It's still a, a bit of a soft metal. It's going to wear out after 10 years of average use. And if it was really heavily used rail, it could wear out after even a year. And so we need steel. So steel comes along. Englishman Henry Bessemer took out a patent on making steel in 1856, uh, has a process for manufacturing steel. Uh, and um, Siemens-Martin process, the open hearth process in 1865, advances it a little bit further, less nitrogen, better control of the carbon that's in the steel, and so you end up with steel that's even less uh, uh, brittle. Okay, so that's the transport. That's what's underneath, and if you want to take, you know, if you want to just look ahead and kind of what we've got now, I mean, the friction problem has really gone away completely with maglev trains. Right, yeah. Which we don't, but just to point out that friction's a big part of the issue with rail transport, you know, maglev is the ultimate realization of that it's frictionless yeah and we've so, got maglev trains exceeding 300 miles an hour now so now that we've got the rails down what's driving what's on top of the rails and that's steam right so steam power was initially harnessed by this guy named thomas newcomen and it was used to pump water out of mines that was the only application he had for it because of the way the system worked you would heat up the chamber with steam it would push you know, the piston up, which would power the pump that would pump water up out yeah. of the mine. And then once the steam cooled, the piston would lower water would actually flood into the chamber and cool it off so mm. that it would, you know, progressively cool off more. So so steam power is still, uh, you know, if we think about the internal combustion engine, you've got a chamber with a piston and a cylinder that uh, compresses a gasoline air mixture is ignited by a spark that then explodes and drives the piston in the opposite direction. You know, steam is sort of the same idea. You get motion from a piston that's moving back and forth and driving a shaft. And that shaft, the the piston is driven back and forth by steam. So steam from water, water gets heated up by some source, steam fills the chamber and then drives the piston ahead. Uh, not terribly different from internal combustion, at least in, in principle. Right. Um, you know, that, that piston driving things ahead. And so now it's, again, it's an issue of you know, efficiency. How do you make a, you know, an engine that can co- make enough steam How to do we drive do something with something this? really heavy? Exactly. So enter James Watt. Yes, that James Watt, the guy that the Watt is named after, the guy who classified horsepower. Mm. He tweaked this engine design for more practical uses in industry. So this was used for cotton mills and other machinery, but they were huge. They were large. They were stationary. 
Uh, they still required a separate condenser and an air pump. And so it, this was not what we needed for mm. locomotion right, at right. this point. Incredibly useful. You know, this is, again, the evolution of technology. So along comes uh, this other guy in 1804 who built what really is the first working steam locomotive guy by the name of Richard Trevithick. And the challenge that he had here with this thing was uh, you, you, you could get it going, but it was um, really too heavy for the cast iron plates of the day. Yeah. It would move down the track and so on, but just not practical from a standpoint of weight. It, it, yes, we can put it on the track. It destroys the tracks, but it worked. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, so there, there, that was the catch me, catch me who can uh, locomotive. Yep. Just went around in a circle. Proof of concept only, really. So the first commercially successful steam locomotive was Matthew Murray's. It's called rack locomotive called the Salamanca, built for uh, a narrow gauge uh, railway called the Middleton Railway in 1812. So this thing was twin cylinder, uh, not heavy enough to actually break the track. And it addressed another problem that had come up, too, about adhesion. You know, the idea being, all right, I've got an iron wheel on an iron rail. And when I apply torque to the wheel and begin to spin it, it's going to slip on the track. All right, so how do you deal with the adhesion problem? And uh, and he, he coped with this by using a cog wheel that's got teeth cast on on one side of the rails. And so that's the and it was considered the first rack uh, railway. And in, in New Hampshire, which is where I'm I'm from, way in the northeast corner of the United States, there is the cog railway that goes up Mount Washington, which is similar kind of technology to go up some of the very steep inclines of Mount Washington, uh, one of the highest mountains in uh, or the highest mountain in the northeast. You have teeth that are underneath the train that are grabbing onto a section of tracks that help drive this thing forward. Other than that, it wouldn't have enough adhesion between the wheels and the tracks to keep the train going up at a reasonable pace or coming down at a safe pace. (laughs) The first roller coaster. (laughs) Um. So the earliest trains or locomotives in, you know, actual service were small. They were four-wheeled locomotives. The inclined cylinders on these locomotives caused the engine to rock. So they became horizontal to resolve this and then had a planetary design where they were mounted inside the frames. Kind of counterbalancing the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, I yeah. I mean, if you if you think about like a, a V6 engine, when it's idling, often it sort of rocks side to side. Well, if you've got yeah. these giant weighty cylinders mo- or pistons moving in these cylinders, it's it really was rocking these things. So they yeah, moved yeah. them horizontal, which helped, and then they made planetary design that offset it all. The big problem that they still had was the crank axles, which were still very prone to just flat out snapping. The stability was improved, but transferring the power from the steam engine actually to the wheels was the biggest problem. So greater speed was achieved by using larger driving wheels, but the larger the wheel, the more tendency there is for slippage when starting. Mm, Okay. So for, for traction, you would use smaller wheels coupled together. But that would limit your speed because of the fragility uh, okay. of the smaller wheels. You can only the, go so fast that the wheel's going to break. Right. And, and, very small. and the connecting rod will break because there's yeah. that much more torque yep, yep, yep. being applied at the wheel. So there was a distinction between passenger locomotives, which would move quickly, and more powerful cargo locomotives that would move massive amounts of weight much, much slower, but they had to do that for reliability. Now, we put trains in the past category because really when we think about trains and steam power, that's all, you know, turn of the century stuff we think of actually a century ago. So the reality is trains are still really important today. 
And it was very key for the Industrial Revolution, settling the Western frontier in America, you know, and so on. And today, it's one of the most efficient forms of transport ever. Uh, so a train can move a ton of freight over 480 miles on a single gallon of fuel. And so if you think about that, the 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 it's four times more efficient than the nearest alternative, which would be trucking. So all those semis going up and down the highway, trains are – Four times as efficient at, at moving least freight around the four company, times, country. Right. Yeah. So this is why if you go out in the American Midwest, you will see long trains um, moving freight around from place to place. And you think, oh, that's terrible. They're polluting the environment, blah, blah, blah. No, it's actually super efficient. It's a really good way to uh, to move uh, large amounts of cargo around from, from point A to point B. So all that information about trains came from Wikipedia, which we freely acknowledge. Um, and thank you to Wikipedia for uh, for putting that stuff together. Uh, for us, it's, it, you know, it makes the research part of doing a past, uh, much easier if you just go to Wikipedia and find out someone that's done a good job of that already. So our, our thanks there. All right. So we did present, we did past. Now let's look to the future. And you did a blog here on the Tesla Powerwall. Tesla is in the car people, right? Correct. But this is, this is a big old battery of some sort. Yeah. So Tesla is getting into, well, they have a new division called Tesla Energy, and they've developed this power wall, which is a modular energy storage system, mm-hmm. be that from the grid or from you know solar cells that you have or wind turbine or, or what have you. And the idea is if, if you're charging this off the grid is to charge it at night and use the energy during the day when the energy is more expensive from your battery instead of from the grid. Mm. And it's a twofold benefit. A, you're going to be paying less for electricity during the day, and B, it will reduce the demand on the actual power grid itself because at peak use time, especially in you know California, Nevada, things like that, the grid is under huge stress in the United States to keep up with air conditioning demands and lighting and computers and just everything we use. So this will bridge the gap in the peak and trough of grid demand. Where this becomes even more useful is if you do have your own energy production source. Like I got a wind tower out back or I've got solar panels, something like that. You're telling me I can store my own electricity in the power wall? Right. That's exactly what this is aimed at. Now, there have been other, you know, if if you have seriously looked at going off grid or partial grid or whatever your your goal is, you know there are battery systems out there. Yeah, a bunch of lead acid batteries. You need to um, to, to store uh, electricity in some way because at night there's no production. Uh, well, I guess wind you could have some production, but solar particularly, which is the the one I've looked into the most. That's you need off peak production, or you need crappy overcast day uh, uh, production of electricity. Where are you going to get it from? Well, on your high peak days, we don't use all your energy. You store it in your bank of batteries that lives down in your basement and yep. is miserable to maintain and is a hazard. I think I was talking to someone else about this and they kind of pointed out, yeah, it's basically a bomb sitting in your basement. <laughs> yeah. You know, there was nothing plug and play, I guess, is the best. And yes, also complex. You need a, tr- you need a transformer, you need an, an ATS an inverter, switch. And, yes. Yeah. And, and you needed to have it all set up. This comes as a very sleek, attractive, it's like an Apple product. And Tesla, Tesla is the only other company that I know of that competes with Apple on the fanaticism of elegance. Mm. You know, other companies try, but Apple and Tesla sort of are in a class of their own as far as, you know, specification and just 
making things aesthetically pleasing. And this, the interesting thing, most interesting thing about this power wall is that people were speculating it was going to be $12,000, It's beautiful. And it costs you for a seven kilowatt unit. It's $3,000 and a 10 kilowatt was 3,500. Yeah. So it's kind of a no brainer to go for the 10. So kilowatt hours, meaning that's how much storage it's got. And when I've used 10 kilowatt hours, it's empty. Correct. And it needs to be recharged. Okay. Now the, the really uh, interesting design element that they've added to this is that they are modular. And you can just piggyback one on top of the other. These are using, uh, I I believe, lithium ion. Mm-hmm. And you just have one installed by an electrician. And, hey, as long as you're there, just wire put, this put other one into one. it. Yeah. And they, they mate up and look like one cohesive unit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and will provide, for example, if you had two 10 kilowatts, you're getting... 20, which is interesting. 20 kilowatt hours is about my household budget. I've been monitoring my electrical usage rather fanatically over the last couple of months. As because have I. Yeah. My electric bill has been very high up here in New England for a variety of reasons. We happen to have very high electric utility rates. So I've been doing everything I can to try to cut my, you'll know, be more conscious about the electricity I'm using and then be more efficient in some of my appliances. So for example, LED bulbs has been the kick I've been on lately. Sure. Uh, and since I've switched over to LED bulbs, I have dropped my consumption down pretty dramatically. I've also powered down a lot of the stuff in my network rack, unless I'm actually using it and I'll go downstairs and power it up. Turn your not lab just, off. Yes. Not just let it crank away 24 hours a day, but 20 kilowatt hours is currently about my budget. And that's exactly what my budget is as well. When I hmm. sat down to calculate this, I would need two of the 10 kilowatt units. And so you're looking at $7,000, mm-hmm. which is a lot of money, but it's nowhere near what I expected it to be. And then when you factor in tax credits, here in the U.S., and possibly if, if you live in a state that gives tax credits as well, you can come in significantly under that for your, your net. Well, and, and who says you necessarily have to buy a full day's worth of battery supply? Because if you've well. got your own electrical production of some kind, you're going to be feeding it a trickle charge all day long. Um, so you might not need to store that much. Um, and I'm assuming you could buy one, get another one later if you want. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, the, the prices seem reasonable and the technology is not lead acid. It's, you know, lithium ion, I assume. I or... think it's either lithium ion or nickel metal hydride. I forget which one, but honestly. But it's something like you'd have in a laptop. It's what Tesla makes in their car, puts it, in their cars. It's not. Yeah. And, and that's the other thing is these are the exact same cells mm-hmm. that they're using in the cars. And it's not just for home either. They have industrial applications for this as well. They were actually powering the entire event where this was unveiled from Powerwall cells. And they, <sighs> they cut away and showed that this is running entirely off this bank. of It was a huge bank because, you know, it's a huge conference center. But they're producing this in their existing facility. And then production will move to the Gigafactory, which is their, you know, uber new production facility for their batteries and, and cars in the future and runs entirely off of solar power. Mm-hmm. So it's... It's a very, very interesting development and one that I'd love to keep my eyes on. I, I can't swing it now, but when I can couple it with solar would probably be better for me than wind because I'm not in a wind zone. Yeah. So running a tower, even if I could get permission to run one and I didn't mind the noise that it generated, <laughs> neither of those like it. Um, solar would be the way to go for me. If I could put that solar into something like that, all of a sudden it sounds much more attractive to me than a bank of lead acid battery sitting in the basement. As right. Bomb. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I mean, you look at the, the cost, if you had to finance it and then you look at your electricity bill and really, if you're even close, 
it's pretty compelling. If you're if you're spending three hundred dollars a month on electricity mm-hmm. or three hundred and fifty dollars a month on electricity, well, geez, I guess I could long term invest in my home. Yeah, and sure. pay that three hundred dollars sure. a month towards the battery and the solar kit and all that. So it's you know one of those things everyone has to weigh out. But it's it's an interesting development, and as solar continues to get incrementally more and more efficient, it's going to play into the the global energy consumption landscape. I think. Well, guys, this was show number two. We went over an hour. Uh, we're slapping ourselves on the wrist uh, as we speak because we, we know better. But uh, gosh darn it, it's show two and we're still trying to figure this thing out. So maybe we went a little bit long and, uh, and we'll do better next time as far as that goes. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks on Twitter. EthanCBanks.com is my blog, mostly about networking and other kinds of stuff like that. And by the way, since you're listening to this show, you might like my other blog, which is kind of off to the side that I don't write too much, but it's about whatever I find interesting called Unfit for Humans unfitforhumans.com it's really terrible I actually recommend you don't go there at all it's just awful I read it (laughs) (laughs) I am Eric Zutfen at Z-U-T-F-E-N Zutfen on Twitter and Zutfen.com Z-U-T-F-E-N.com see you next week have a good one